Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with more of an idea of talking about biotechnology and how the technologies and emerging innovations can help people and the planet. I'm Kevin Fulta and this week we're talking to Graham Brooks and many of you know the name because you've seen the annual report that's come out from Brooks and Barfoot that dives deep into the economics of biotech crops. And what the purpose of today's podcast will be and what will be really the best outcome from this is to provide you as a listener a vetted and uh, very substantiated evidence-based discussion on some of the common points around the technology and some of the arguments that others make against it. So joining us today from the UK, we have uh, Graham Brooks. Uh, Hi, Graham. Hello there. And to all your uh, listeners, yeah, there's. Um, it's actually getting pretty good. We got six thousand a week nowadays, so that's that's not too bad for a podcast coming out of my office. But let's let's talk about your report. So, could you tell us a little bit about the report? It's always really dense, um, always something I look forward to. But who is PG Economics, and why do you do the analyses you do, and uh, who pays for it? And maybe just some ideas about. You know, do they have any influence on the final outcomes of the, that report? Yeah, um, PG Economics is, uh, in effect, it's just Peter Barford and myself. We're agricultural economists. Uh, we specialize in looking at things like new technology in agriculture, not just biotechnology. Uh, we've been doing this type of work for about 30 years. And during that time, we've spent the last 20 years doing a lot of work on the impact of crop biotechnology. Now, about 12 years ago, we were asked to start trying to quantify the global impacts. And we've been doing this work and updating it every year since 2004. Now, the work that we do on this topic is 
paid for by the biotech industry. Monsanto are the actual primary funders. Uh, this is normal for the type of work we do. We do work for both the public and private sector. And any clients we do work for have absolutely no input into the content of the work we undertake. Uh, and in, a, in many of our studies, this included, we always seek to get our work published in peer-reviewed journals. And much of the information I'm going to talk to you about during this podcast comes from our latest two peer review reports on the impact of biotech crops globally, which have recently been published in the journal GM Crops and Food. Both these papers are available on open access to anyone who wants to download and read them. And I would encourage any of your listeners who wish to explore this subject further to look at our papers, read and digest the material themselves, and if, if they feel inclined to explore some of the many peer-reviewed papers that we draw on that are referenced in our work. The website associated with this episode will present those links so people can download. And maybe even going forward, we can uh, even put out there that if people have direct questions about the content or the questions about the, the, the publications, uh, maybe we could get back together and answer some of those. So everybody should be encouraged to check those out. Uh, so where did the data come from for the report? And you mentioned it's peer-reviewed, but tell us more about that process and where you get the original data. Well, much of the original data is from other people's analysis, uh, and much of this is in peer review literature. Uh, but I'm sure you'll appreciate that there is not necessarily a study conducted every year for every piece of biotech in every country. So we draw on that material. We have to extrapolate and extend it. And in some cases, we do our own analysis uh, and we update that based on changes in key variables such as the cost of uh, production, prices of agricultural commodities and how much um, pesticide farmers are using. So it's a combination. Most of it is peer-reviewed uh, and some of it is our own analysis. But as I said, we then submit this analysis to peer-reviewed journals, um, and I am actually now the author of 24 peer-reviewed papers on the impact of biotech that have been written over the last 12 years. And as an economist, when you're looking at, when, when I read your reports, there really is a strong discussion about the costs of farming and the benefits of the biotech uh, traits when well I should say the costs and benefits of the biotech traits and what are some of the major trends when we look at their impact for saving money for farmers and which crops are the most profitable well firstly it's important to provide uh, the baseline that to date the technology has been mainly used in the four crops of corn canola cotton 
and soya beans. Now, in cotton and corn, two main types of technology being used. One is called insect resistance, uh, which provides protection against some of the main pests of cotton and corn. And herbicide tolerance, which is essentially a technology which allows farmers to spray herbicide over the crops um, and it will kill the weeds but not kill the crop. Fundamentally the aim is to provide farmers with easier, cheaper and better weed control and that technology is available in all four of those crops. Now the technology where it's been adopted over the last 20 years has given farmers around the world major improvements in their levels of farm income. On average, across all the 18 million farmers who will be using the technology every year, over that 20-year period, the average gain has been equal to about $90 a hectare. So it's been fairly substantial. And the biggest improvements in income have tended to come to farmers in developing countries. And where, where in the developing world have the greatest impacts been seen in terms of farmer income? Uh, two, uh, two of the countries where you've seen some of the greatest impact are India and China, where farmers have enthusiastically adopted insect-resistant cotton, and the vast majority of cotton grown in both countries now uses this technology. And farmers in those countries have been getting return, improvements in their returns equal to over $200 a hectare, which is a major improvement in their incomes. The, the reason why the technology delivers such benefits in developing countries is because in those countries, if you wanted to use conventional technology to try and control these pests, the traditional way is to apply insecticides. Now, in many cases, if you want to apply insecticides effectively, you've got to ensure that you're monitoring your crops regularly and then spraying them at the optimal time. Many farmers in developing countries just don't have the time or the technology to do this. And therefore, in many cases, they, they sometimes have not even been spraying their crops. Secondly, a number of other farmers have never realised how much yield they're losing from the main pests that they face. So when they, this technology became available, you're effectively putting the protection, you're, you're effectively putting the insecticide protection inside the crop in the seed. They no longer needed to spray it and they got significant yield benefits. So that's the main reason why they've got the largest benefits. And can you comment a little bit on the nature of spraying in those countries? I mean, it, from what I understand, they're dealing with older school chemistries, perhaps uh, the more hazardous chemistries, that uh, the chemistries aren't always available. Sometimes there's counterfeit um, products that are being sold. Is, you know, how else... Are, are those actual concerns in the developing world and really an impetus to adopt the biotech traits? 
yes, I would say um, the health and safety aspect is been uh, a very important aspect in developing countries. Uh, it's important to recognise in developed countries where we live, um, the traditional view of pesticide application is via um, mechanical sprayers. Well, in developing countries, it's mostly applied by individuals using backpack sprayers that contain no more than 15, 20 litres uh, and often they're not using protective clothing because they simply do not possess it and therefore they're exposing themselves to uh, insecticides that farmers in developed countries are not. So that's been one of the ancillary benefits of using this technology. It's enabled farmers to significantly reduce the frequency with which they apply insecticides. For example, a crop like cotton, traditionally in countries like India or China, they might apply 15 to 20 applications per crop. Now they're only applying two, three, maybe four applications targeted at the small number of pests that biotech is not seeking to control. So that, that's been one of the, the main ancillary benefits in developing countries, the health and safety side. And you touched on the idea of yield. And I know that last year in October, there was quite a dust up from the New York Times, which repeated kind of an old mantra that there is no benefit in terms of yield in biotech crops. How do your analyses uh, dovetail with that uh, conclusion? Uh, our analysis, which I re-emphasize, is based on the review of a large amount of peer-reviewed literature shows that there is a consistent evidence of improved yields with using this technology. Um, if farmers did not receive or get any benefits from using the technology and yield benefits by our analysis are probably accounting for nearly three quarters of the total farm income benefits they get. If they were not getting these benefits, why would 18 million farmers be using the technology in the last year or two? Um, to anyone who questions the benefits and whether farmers are getting yield benefits or not, I would suggest they ask farmers who use the technology why they use it. Well, well many people will say, well, it's just the companies forcing them to do it. And I don't know that I've ever seen a farmer forced into doing anything. No, my, my experience of farmers is uh, most of them are some of the most savvy businessmen around. If you actually take, if you make a comparison between someone who's just running their company, um, not in agriculture, they know most of the variables and factors which affect their business operation. But if you're a farmer, you have that added complication called the weather, which you have absolutely no control over. So I would say farmers are very savvy businessmen. And when they are faced with the availability of a new technology, they may well try it. And if it doesn't deliver a benefit to them, they won't use it again. 
Um, and I think the evidence from biotech is that where the vast majority of farmers have tried this technology, they carried on using it because they get benefits. If there was one piece of data from our analysis that probably shows more than anything else why the technology is popular with the farmers who've used it, it relates to how much extra they pay for using the technology and the benefit they get. In the last year of our analysis for 2015, we estimated that on average, for every extra dollar farmers pay for the biotech seed, they have got about three and a half dollars in extra income. Now, I think anyone with any um, monetary or economic understanding will recognize a 350% return on your investment is not too bad. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> I guess maybe another example of where we saw or another way to look at this that may be particularly effective is looking at a case that comes up in the report about where technology was used and showing benefit and where it was pulled back. And if you look at Romania, um, what happened in Romania um, throughout, say, the 2000s? And then uh, the funny thing that happened in 2007 that changed their economic um, ability to use these technologies. Yeah, in, a, in an adoption of new technology, this is a, this is a case study in sadness, really. Uh, Romania um, originally started using herbicide-tolerant soybeans in 1999. This came on the back of, um, in the 1990s, the collapse of communism, a fundamental economic change, an agricultural sector suffered from a lack of investment. And you can effectively say that for several years, there was a not a lot of weed control being undertaken in the country. When this technology came along, farmers found that where they used it, they got immense improvements in weed control and they were getting, in the case of soybean crops, getting something like 30% improvements in their yields. So not surprisingly, they got substantial improvements in returns. The soybean area expanded threefold, and Romania moved from being a net importer of soybeans for use in their animal feed industry to... Uh, being largely self-sufficient. In 2007, Romania joined the European Union. Um, the use of herbicide-tolerant soybeans for planting in the European Union is not allowed, uh, mainly because the technology, the main technology provider, Monsanto, has not applied for approval for its use in the European Union and as a result Romania had to stop using this technology in soybeans. Ten years on now from this situation Romanian soybean production has fallen substantially. The area has fallen back uh, to probably no more than 40% of the area it was in 2007. Uh, yields have fallen. 
production's fallen and Romania is now again a net importer of soybeans. And I also knew that uh, Romania had great benefit against a Colorado potato beetle um, back when there was BT potatoes and that as soon as they gave up or joined the EU they had to give up the technologies which led to greater use of insecticides. So Romania really is a case study of a place that the benefits of adoption and then the uh, takeaway. Are there any other cases like that that uh, help us understand the benefits of the technology and what happens when it's restricted? Well, firstly, let's just go back to Romania. Um, Romania has never uh, allowed the use of um, Colorado beetle-protected potatoes commercially. They were certainly trialing it and thinking of using it um, about 15, 20 years ago. And I think they would have certainly been using this technology if they had not joined the European Union because it would have brought significant benefits to their potato farmers. So I think it's reasonable to assume that they might well have used that technology if they hadn't have joined the EU. And if you go back to the soybean example, um, on the residual soybean area that is now grown using conventional technology, the environmental profile of the herbicides used is undoubtedly worse than the profile of the herbicides used on the biotech soybeans. Um, and one of the other main replacement crops that has come in instead of soybeans is oilseed rape or canola. And uh, equally, the environmental profile of the herbicides used on oilseed rape is worse than the environmental profile of the herbicides previously used on biotech soybeans. So not only has Romania lost out from additional production of an important crop that's used in their livestock sector, but it has had a detrimental impact on the environment from use of more toxic herbicides in the agricultural sector. And we'll pick up uh, with that idea on the other side of the uh, break. Um, We'll take just a moment here and we're talking to Graham Brooks from PG Economics in the UK, the author of Farm Income and Production Impacts of Using GM Crop Technology 1996 to 2015, available on the website through a link. We'll be back in just a moment. The Talking Biotech Podcast is approaching a podcast milestone, the 100th episode. The reviews are energizing and the wide listenership spurs us on to continue to produce improved and compelling podcast material into the next 100 episodes. At this rate, we're projected to reach the 1,000th episode in November of 2034. Now, based on your emails, the 100th episode will be an interview with Dr. Kevin Folta, the originator and one of the Talking Biotech hosts. If you have questions, please mail them to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. 
or submit them on Twitter at Talking Biotech. The special episode will be hosted by Chris Barbie. Most of all, thank you for listening. Thank you for telling a friend and helping us share the wonderful stories of science that can help people and help the planet. Welcome back to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Uh, today we're talking with Graham Brooks, who is the author of an annual report, along with Peter Barfoot, on the uh, economic implications of biotech crops worldwide. And we're discussing the 2017 report and its distillation that was published earlier this year. We left off a few minutes ago talking about herbicide-resistant crops and some of the ways in which they've decreased the environmental impact of herbicide use in farming. So can you help me understand this? Because this comes up all the time. There are many people who allege that these technologies are increasing massively um, herbicide use and pesticide use. We talked about insecticides already a little bit, but how do we deal with the increased herbicide use question? Okay, um, there are several strands to this um, issue, um, and I apologize in advance for a degree of um, complexity in the answers that I will give you, but I, I'm, I'm afraid there's um, no way around this. Um, our analysis shows that over the 20 year period to 2015 crop biotechnology has reduced the spraying of crop protection products by nearly 620 million kilograms of active ingredient. That's about a global reduction of over 8%. If you want a context it's equal to more than China's total crop protection product use in a year, which is fairly substantial. However, I would caveat that by saying that depending on the baseline of what you're making the comparison with, you can say that it has increased pesticide use or it has decreased pesticide use. And then secondly, I'll come on to talk about um, talking about the amount of pesticide use is of very limited value anyway. Anyway, let's go back to the issue of does it or does it not increase pesticide use? Firstly, the insect resistant technology has undoubtedly reduced insect um, insecticide use significantly. The technology is effectively replacing insecticides. So you've seen major decreases in insecticide use, especially in a crop like cotton, where farmers are often sprayed up to about 20 times per crop. And possibly half of those 620 million kilogram reduction is related to reduced insecticide use in cotton. On the herbicide use crops, the issue is a little more complicated. Um, and the reason for this is because the technology is effectively resulting in farmers switching from using a number of herbicides which target specific types of weeds like grass weeds or broadleaf weeds in favor of products which are called broad spectrum which 
target all types of weeds, of which the main one used is glyphosate. So you're, you're seeing a switch in the type of herbicide use. Now, when the technology was first used, it undoubtedly resulted in farmers using less herbicide. They often replaced the use of three or four selective herbicides with one or two treatments of glyphosate. However, over the years, after the first five, six, seven years of reduced herbicide use, farmers began to use more glyphosate, sometimes with additional um, one or two other herbicides, mainly because we were starting to see some weeds becoming resistant to glyphosate. The issue of weed resistance is a topic that I'll come on to a little later. So farmers, after initially decreasing the amount of herbicides, they have tended to increase over the last 10 years in trying to address the issue of weed resistance. Now, weed resistance is not an issue that's fundamentally affected by the technology. It's how farmers are using it. And weeds becoming resistant to herbicides is nothing new with the use of biotech crops. There are many, many herbicides that have weeds that are resistant to them. And in fact, some groups of herbicides have many, many more weeds that are resistant to them than glyphosate does. So, yes, if you look at the amount of herbicide applied per acre or per hectare with herbicide tolerant crops, the amount your average farmer for example in America uses in 2015 is more than he used 10 years ago but the key point to make the comparison with is not what they used historically it's what they would use now if they didn't use this technology so if they went back to using conventional soybeans or corn or cotton it's what would they be using and our analysis basically looks at that it says this is what they're actually using now and this is what they would use if they switch to conventional crops based on what conventional crops actually use which we've identified from tracking actual usage in combination with talking to extension advisors about what farmers would use if they switch back from biotech to conventional crops and it is also interesting to note that whilst over the last 10 years you can track an increase in herbicide usage with biotech crops you see a similar trend in conventional crops those farmers are also increasing the amount of herbicide they're using because they are also faced with increasing resistance weed resistance problems not the same resistance because they're using different herbicides but it's the same issue so that's the story of how you can always talk while you will you will hear some people talk about it leading to an increase in herbicide use i would say this is not correct to say that uh it has resulted in an increase in herbicide use because you have to make that comparison with what farmers would use if they had to switch back. Having said all that, 
in that complex discussion, I will now come back to the key second point, which is the amount of herbicide used is not really a very good measure of the impact on the environment. You need to be able to look at other factors such as the toxicity of the herbicide on the environment. And the key point with the use of biotech crops is that glyphosate is a relatively environmentally benign herbicide compared with many of the products it's replaced. So as a result in our analysis we try and use an alternative indicator called the environmental impact quotient which allows you to make some comparisons and includes consideration of toxicity between different herbicide regimes used on different crops. It was developed at Cornell University in the 1990s. Now I would consider it a better measure than just looking at the amount of herbicides used. It's not a perfect measure but it does allow you to make some comparisons and if you actually use that measure the impact of using biotech crops has actually resulted in an 18% improvement in the environmental impact associated with crop protection products over the last 20 years. That compares with an 8% reduction in the actual amount. So I would argue that overall the technology has resulted in a uh, reduction in the amount of pesticides used. But more importantly, in terms of the impact on the environment, it's resulted in a larger benefit. I really appreciate the way you frame that and the depth that you took it, because this question comes up all the time, basically from one paper that came out a few years ago that said, aha, look at the herbicide use increase since 2000 or well, since 1996. And I always think, well, of course it increased because we didn't have the herbicide-tolerant crops before 1996, and the use of glyphosate was confined typically to municipal uses, residential uses, and on-farm uses uh, as a burn-down agent, but not as much as a uh, crop protection strategy. And so it always was almost seemed kind of disingenuous to say, you know, to promote this idea as a conclusion of the paper that... Uh, that herbicide use was increasing um, based upon total kg of product applied relative to 1996. So I really appreciate the nuance you give us in that particular uh, discussion. The, the other big question that comes up in your report, which I usually don't think about very much, is the carbon footprint of agriculture and how that's affected, at least in terms of crop biology, by the adoption of biotech crops. And so what does the report tell us about that aspect? Basically, uh, crop biotechnology has significantly reduced agriculture's greenhouse gas emissions by helping farmers adopt more sustainable practices such as reduced tillage. This enables them to burn less fossil fuels and retain more carbon in the soil. Um, what I'm talking about there is essentially it's enabled farmers to use uh, to switch to not ploughing the soil. Ploughing of the soil is uh, 
one way in which agriculture releases carbon into the atmosphere by breaking up the service uh, and bringing stored carbon that's uh, from decaying plant matter um, to the service it's releasing carbon if you switch to a no or a reduced tillage system you no longer plow so you're no longer releasing carbon into the atmosphere so switching to reduced tillage produces that um, carbon benefit now the technology helps farmers adopt um, reduced tillage because it enables farmers to get good weed control by using glyphosate previously plowing was part of weed control and if farmers had wanted to use reduced tillage before this technology they always found it difficult to get good weed control without um, with the herbicides that they they were using because of the issues related to possibly damaging crops this technology enabled farmers to use no-till um, and get effective weed control so they so it resulted in the carbon benefits and they also got other benefits that go with no-till such as increased water retention in the soil and less soil erosion so that was one of the major carbon benefits of less uh, carbon being released from the soil and the second one was if you're plowing less and you're spraying less in developed countries you're you you're not using tractors you're not using um, specialized spraying equipment so you're using less fuel so there's less um, emissions from that source now we estimated that in 2015 these two um, sources that have been facilitated by biotech crops resulted in um, 26.7 billion kilograms of co2 not being emitted into the atmosphere that would otherwise have been if this technology had not been used to give you some context that's equivalent to um, taking 11.9 million cars off the road for a year that's roughly 40% of the cars on the road in the United Kingdom. I'm not sure what the equivalent figure would be in the United States, but it would be uh, significantly lower than that for the simple reason that you have far more cars in the United States and most of your cars emit far more carbon. Yeah, we have, we have monster trucks. <laughs> yeah, probably, probably you could have taken about five of those off the road. <laughs> That's about right. Uh, <laughs> so if we wanted to summarize the entire um, report, you know, we talked about reductions in insecticide use, a switch in herbicide use, and a potential reduction there, um, reasonable yields, more money for farmers, and then carbon impacts. Is there any other impact that we really left out? Well, the only other thing I'd say that um, I think is an important one from the perspective of global sustainable agricultural production relates to the impact of the technology on land use and because the technology has resulted in higher yields and extra production of these four crops um, it's allowed farmers to grow more without needing to use additional land and 
we estimated that if the technology had not been available in 2015, if the world had wanted to maintain production levels at the level that we'd achieved with the technology, the world would have had to have planted about another 8.4 million hectares of soybeans, 7.5 million hectares of corn, another 3 million hectares of cotton, and 0.7 million hectares of canola. So about 19 million hectares of extra of these crops. To give you some context, that's roughly equivalent to 11% of the arable, area, arable cropping area in the United States, or nearly a third of the arable land in Brazil. So by increasing the productivity on agricultural land, it, is, it has reduced the pressure on farmers to bring in new land, such as chopping down more of the rainforest or ploughing up the savannas in countries like Brazil. And I think that is an important um, issue to bear in mind when considering the impact of this technology at a global level. No, excellent point, and really one that we don't consider often enough, in my opinion, but certainly certainly is a big deal, because the critics always will say it's been the expansion of uh, GE soybean or corn in the United States, which removes um, fence lines and removes uh, pastures and removes uh, you know naturally occurring wildflowers and ditches that are forage for wild bees. You know, so much the argument that the land use is the problem when really the biotech crops are helping in a sustainable way, it sounds like. Yeah, and I think it's important to bear in mind that um, biodiversity is at its highest in land that is not in agriculture. Fundamentally, agriculture is bad for the environment. All forms of agriculture are bad for the environment. And I mean all forms, not just conventional, biotech, even organic. And if you want to maximize biodiversity, you want to maximize the land that is not in agriculture. And if we can um, improve the productivity of land that is already in agriculture, which has, which has a relatively low biodiversity, yes, let's improve the biodiversity on that land, but the way we preserve most biodiversity is by reducing the pressure to bring in land that has high biodiversity into agriculture. And this technology, by improving productivity on existing agricultural land, is making an important contribution to that. No, very good. And, and you know, the it really beats the alternative of going back to uh, hunting and gathering, which I'm not very good at either. You know, I'm, I'm a typer and talker, you know, not a hunter and gatherer, you know, and if we're going to continue to feed more people, we need to be using the resources we have more effectively, and I think that's where, uh, what, what the distillation really is from the report and the technology. But if we wanted to know more about your work and uh, more about the report, do you have a social media presence or any place that people could find out more information? Well, fundamentally, the best place to go to is our website, where you will see copies of the a full report. You will find links to the peer review report. You will, you will find some summaries. 
um, and also go to the website of GM Crops and Food Journal where you can download the reports on on there. There, there will be other media platforms that are drawing on our work, but fundamentally for your listeners, I would urge them to have a look at our work and inquire, ask questions, review and read some of the references that we draw on and draw your own conclusions. My enthusiasm for the technology is based on analysis of the impact. Uh, it is evidence-based. I think there is a consistent body of evidence out there which shows the technology has delivered important environmental and economic gains. But your readers should go and look and, and draw their own conclusions. Don't just take my word for it. Uh, thank you very much for that excellent advice. And I'll make sure that there are links that are active to all of the uh, cited work. And uh, down the road, if people do have questions, you know, they, they never hesitate to leave them on my website or call me or send me an email. And um, if it looks like there's some good interest around these points, uh, maybe we can have a special episode to address those as well. I am always happy to answer questions. No, that's excellent. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. I think that what you've done inside, you know, 45 minutes of conversation here will have tremendous impact of its own in fortifying the listener's ability to have evidence-based conversations regarding these particular uh, issues. So thank you very much for joining me today. Okay, many thanks. I'm no doubt we'll speak again. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Uh, write a review on iTunes. You know, please uh, help us out and uh, you know, share your thoughts and let us know things that you would like to hear more about and things that we could do better. Um, I really appreciate all the feedback. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.